Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week is Dr. Joe Mulhall from Hope Not Hate. Thanks so much for joining us, Joe. Thanks for having me. Just to begin with, I think it's about a year since we spoke to your colleague Patrick from Hope Not Hate about your book that you co-authored, The International Alt-Right. How's The International Alt-Right been in the last year or so? Well, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, the big question, I mean, we kind of finished that book a few years ago, and the big question was like, what next for the alt-right? And obviously, with what's happened with Trump in America and the storming of the Capitol building, I mean, in some ways, the alt-right as a cohesive movement that we were talking about in that book doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. But all of the people we talk about are pretty much all still active. So it's kind of, it's a much more distributed network of people. They're all still doing their terrible things, if you will. But they're let, perhaps less so doing it under this kind of umbrella terminology that they, you know, they, they less of them identify as alt right anymore. Is that because the term doesn't have the freshness, the appeal that it once had? Well, I think it's a few things. I think, I mean, part of it is the term alt right was uh, for for many a term of convenience anyway. I mean, in some ways, many of the individuals that that made up the alt right. Um, had you know long predated this term and, and this movement and kind of would have just previously been described as either neo-Nazis or white supremacists and um, it kind of for a period had this kind of rebranding exercise but I think post Charlottesville when all of a sudden you know the the murder that happened there and the attack and, and the kind of the world's media really understood the alt-right as this extreme far-right movement it became a, a much more negative term for some and so the kind of benefits of using it you know, in terms of whitewashing their reputation, have disappeared. So for some people, they just reverted back to what they'd always been involved in. And for others, I think it was kind of this grand, exciting new movement that they felt they could shape. And, and as time went on, and there, there was an inability to really unite it into a formalized movement, despite some of the attempts by people like Richard Spencer and the like, again, it just lost its use as, as a term that brought people together. In some ways, the advantage of the contemporary far right has is that the internet allows these decentralized post-organizational movements where individuals can engage in activism from all over the world outside of the confines of more formal or traditional movements or, or, or networks. And all of the advantages uh, that come with that, i.e. it's much harder to attack, it's much harder to bring down, it's much harder to uh, kind of take on from a law enforcement thing. Once you become a formalized movement like the alt-right, all of those things don't apply again. So I think lots of people have gone back to finding refuge in strange corners of the internet where they're much harder to be touched. One thing that occurs to me in, in terms of the alt-right is that 
obviously it, it posed as some kind of alternative right-wing formation came to prominence during the Trump regime. And yet at the same time, I guess some of those ideas may have been absorbed in some ways into the mainstream. And that's perhaps reflected in some of the contents of the latest Hope Not Hate report, examining the ways in which particular ideas have become increasingly absorbed into the mainstream. Do you think that's also one of the factors that explains the alt-right's devolution, if you like? Yeah, I, I do, actually. I mean, in the book, actually, we describe the alt-right as a kind of combination, a conglomerate movement, if you will, that brings together the American far-right, the European new right, this kind of philosophical tradition that came out of France in the late 60s, with what we call un- online antagonistic communities. And when they mould together, that's what we kind of caught classed as the alt-right in that Venn diagram. And I remember being uh, undercover in 2013 at an alt-right event in, in Washington, D.C., run by Richard Spencer, and de Benoit was there from Europe. And one of the things he talked about was kind of this metapolitical approach, this idea that culture, and we change society through culture, not necessarily politics. And I think in some ways, those ideas, you know, they, they've obviously been around in the European far right for, for decades, you know, since the late 60s or since 1968, certainly. But in some ways, uh, the, the, the wider far right with things like the identitarian movement in Europe and internationally, the idea that they need to kind of have their hands on the parts of culture and identity has become increasingly mainstream when you think about the kind of culture wars we're having in Europe at the moment about all sorts of things, understanding that in some ways politics is downstream of culture. So there's that. But but I mean, in the UK, you mentioned the state of hate. I think mainstreaming and normalisation is, is the big challenge we face at the moment. Right? In some ways, when you look at the rest of Europe, you've got you know Le Pen in France, the AFD in Germany, Liga in Italy, you know, law and justice in Poland, Sweden, Democrats in Sweden. I mean, I could go on. In the UK, in terms of the electoral far right, we have nothing, right? Then the British National Party is a shadow of its former self. The National Front barely exists. You know, the UKIP uh, is nothing anymore. Like, so in terms of the electoral far right, it's, it's pretty much disappeared. But in some ways, we don't need an electoral far right because the politics of the far right, when it comes to things like anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-migrant sentiment, anti-Muslim prejudice, anti-traveller politics... Uh, I could go on, you could hear from much more mainstream actors, whether or not that's the mainstream press or whether or not it's from our own home office currently with Priti Patel, our home secretary. We've had a real normalisation where the ideas of the far right have, have exploded out beyond the cordon sanitaire and entered the mainstream in the last decade or so. Well, Hope Not Hate have recently released their State of Hate report. Uh, the UK government has also released a report into racism in the UK. Did you find that uh, those reports gelled up much? No. I mean, uh, so the, re- the report you mentioned there is that there was a, there was a commission report came out about kind of systemic and institutional racism and by the government that seemed to not find any. And there's actually been some backtracking in the last day or so where where the kind of people around the report have come out and said, we weren't saying that there was no institutionalised racism, we were merely saying we weren't looking for it, or something along the lines of that. But no, our reports didn't particularly gel up. I mean, when it comes to uh, the government's report, the idea was that some of the findings were that there was like they didn't find levels of institutional racism. What they did say, which I think is fair, is that there is an intersecting thing that causes problems in our society. Part of it's racism, but also part of it is class. Part of it is gender and, and these things. So, so I think that intersectional thing is, is absolutely true. But they've, I think, seriously downplayed the levels of institutional racism. And, and our report 
obviously talks in terms of much broader senses. We we look at the both organised far right, but also societal prejudice in our report. And you know, if you look at some of the statistics around the uh, difficulties that people of ethnic minority communities face in the United Kingdom in terms of jobs, housing, uh, schools, I mean, you could go on childbirth, etc. The idea that there's not institutional systemic prejudice in British society seems pretty untenable. And there's lots of kind of both activists like ourselves, but also academics in the field that have come out and really sorely criticised the government's report on the basis of it being methodologically shoddy, as well as the conclusions being pretty dodgy. (laughs) One of the other phenomena examined in the report is the government policy of creating a hostile environment for uh, some people in the UK. Can you, and that dates back to 2012, I think, can you describe what hostile environment is, what it means, and how it's evolved over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, the hostile environment policy is one of the most kind of egregious and ugly bits of kind of policy that we've seen in Britain for a very long time. It essentially comes out the UK Home Office, and, and it's it's essentially about setting administrative uh, and legislative measures designed to make staying in Britain as difficult as possible for people without leave to remain, uh, in the idea that it will push people towards voluntarily leaving. And, I mean, at its most egregious, this has involved kind of really ugly vans being driven around London with big signage on the side saying, go home. Really kind of incomprehensible that we've got to this stage where this sort of thing has been deemed acceptable. Uh, and the idea that you will essentially force, make uh, life uncomfortable for migrant communities or asylum seekers, make life so uncomfortable that they will voluntarily leave. I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin in terms of how immoral that sort of policy is. And and this has kind of played out in all sorts of ways. I mean, at the moment, we have a Home Secretary called Priti Patel, who really is pretty egregious on, on this sort of stuff and around the issue of asylum seekers and migration this has been the big issue talked about in the by the far right in the last year or so. We've had relatively small numbers of people coming across the channel in boats. And for many on the far right, that represents a kind of invasion. And the Home Secretary has come out and the Home Office put out videos to, like attacking activist lawyers, which were lawyers that were defending people quite legally for their right to remain, um, attacking migrants, and then creating this hostile environment that people don't want to come. They were even like leaking out stories to newspapers about putting gunboats in the English Channel to try and dissuade people crossing the Channel. It's really, really ugly politics. And, and I think the big danger here is the government and, and the, even the Conservative Party will never outflank the British far right on issues of immigration, migration, asylum seekers. They will never outflank them. But what they will do, if we've seen time and time again, is normalise the rhetoric, you know, normalise anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-asylum seeker, anti-immigration rhetoric. And that's what we've seen in a big way in the last year. And this kind of longer-term policy of hostile environment is is kind of really inhumane example of that in the long term. Is the uh, opposition opposed to this policy? What's what's its position? (laughs) <laughs> well, I would, I'd love to know what the, the Labour Party's position is on lots of things. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, broadly speaking, yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, I'm certainly not one of those people that says all the parties are the same because that's absolutely not the case. We've got a pretty pernicious right-wing government in, in, in power at the moment and the Labour Party are much more progressive on these issues. And if you think about the kind of shadow home secretary, she is, uh, Lisa Nandy, she is, is just a world apart from Priti Patel in terms of her politics and her compassion around these issues. So I think the Labour Party are are much, much better. But it's worth remembering, of course, that when I talk about, you know, mainstream parties trying to outflank 
the far right on issues like immigration and migration. You know, this is not just the Conservative Party I'm talking about. You know, the Labour Party itself, you know, Gordon Brown, when Prime Minister, put up a sign saying British jobs for British workers. You know, this was a slogan that was the National Front slogan for a long period, for many years. So, you know, under uh, the uh, two leaders ago in the Labour Party, they released mugs saying tough on immigration or strong on immigration. We've just seen in the last few days a leaflet by a Labour MP for the upcoming elections, which talked about being kind of strong on traveller incursions, you know, kind of anti-traveller rhetoric from the Labour Party. So this is uh, kind of not just a Conservative Party problem, but I'm certainly not saying that the Labour Party are the same as them. They're they're certainly much better more broadly on on this issue. Another thing that uh, happened about a year ago is a lot of people realised that life wasn't going to be the same again with this little thing called the coronavirus. What have you seen play out with COVID on the far right in the past year? And what has surprised you about how the far right has responded to it? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. I mean, the pandemic's had had a huge effect across British society, or across European society, of course. I mean, well, around the world, obviously. But I mean, in terms of what we're monitoring at Hope Not Hate. Uh, And in some ways, what the pandemic has done is accelerate existing trends within the far right. So those bits of the far right, which were old, outdated, slow, you know, not innovative, hadn't embraced the digital age, went into further and steeper and faster decline. You know, they spent the year sat at home, not being able to do anything, not being able to campaign, the sorts of groups that play out on the streets of the UK in some ways. You know, they weren't allowed out onto the streets and they couldn't campaign and those sorts of things. But the elements of the far right, which were more tech savvy, more online, you know, engaged in innovative digital campaigning, those groups did much, much better. Uh, And we saw that with groups like Patriotic Alternative. This is a group that started in 2019 in the UK, led by a former leading uh, BNP figure called Mark Collett. Um, and, you know, they were doing everything from bake sales to, you know, film clubs to homeschooling for children. And so uh, th- that's one of the big trends is I think we've seen like that shift from the older to the younger, from the old institutions to the new institution to the new groups ha- has uh, uh, kind of gathered pace It is one bit. The other big thing, of course, has been the explosion of conspiracy theories in the UK. I mean, the number of people engaging with conspiracy theory content really exploded last year, not just in the UK, but all over Europe. And while not everyone who got involved in the kind of COVID conspiracy world is far right, lots of the far right there is an overlap with. And one of the things I think that's really concerning is is seeing these pathways of radicalization where people got involved in anti-lockdown stuff or anti-mask stuff or even kind of 5G conspiracy stuff and went quite quickly down the rabbit hole towards anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. You know, when these kind of conspiracies, they needed a conspirator and, and invariably that's the Jewish people. And so one of the big worries is is the kind of rise of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories as well. So the thing I guess that I say surprised me is in some ways it's that the, the kind of the far right elements of the far right managed to kind of grow in this period you know in some ways i thought that with lockdown happening you'd have people locked in their homes etc but uh, you know and for some people that really was really problematic for things like the bmp and the national front they just sat at home for a year um but for the more tech savvy bits i was quite surprised in some ways about how many avenues of activism they managed to keep open 
you know, some by breaking rules and just going for, you know, going for marches or going for banner drops, etc., against COVID registration, but but some of them building whole online worlds, you know, or some of them actually kind of making whole curriculums for homeschooling children while schools were shut. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised by them being innovative, but uh, I guess in some ways they were worryingly innovative during a global pandemic, and those ones that were have really prospered from that and set themselves up for the year ahead when. We're going to have real economic turmoil in the UK coming up, and we know what that can mean for the far right. So I think it's a pretty troubling time. Speaking of conspiracy theories, uh, for me, one of the most fascinating things of the State of Hate report was that you unmasked the German artist behind the SABMIC network. Uh, Could you explain to our listeners what SABMIC was? And also, perhaps, what can we learn about things like online culture, democracy, and mass movements in the wake of uh, this revelation of who is behind it? Yeah, sure. So this is a really strange one, right? This is um, this was some work done by my colleague, uh, Gregory, who, who works on the research team with us. And basically, we've been looking at QAnon in the UK for really closely for the last couple of years or so, or certainly for the last year when it really exploded in size after the kind of there was a big shut lockdown or sorry a big shutout of many key figures in QAnon in the last few months so especially after the Capitol building riots we were, the big question was kind of what are we going to find next or, or where are we going and, and there was this network that my colleague kept picking up on which was a very very strange thing I mean basically it's this Berlin-based artist called Sebastian Bien- Bieniek uh, and he created this strange new religion which essentially he targeted at QAnon believers, uh, and basically in some ways actually kind of cast himself as this weird messiah figure. And um, we were picking up huge amounts of this kind of really weird, mysterious kind of social media networking kind of stuff. Lots of it was on Telegram. We found about 136 channels in English, German, Japanese, Korean, and they were all kind of posting QAnon content, but also this kind of weird, strange stuff, which he called like Atamura dynasty and a messianic figure they called uh, Sabimka, the kind of Orion king. And it all seems kind of mad. And I think like part of the strangeness about researching online cultures at the moment is, is you have to kind of try and keep a straight face because th- these things can be extremely dangerous, even though they just come across as really strange. But I mean, this tied into things like the Great Awakening channel in the UK, which is about reopening and changing society. And these had hundreds of thousands of views, a lot of this stuff. Now, my colleague really, really did a good job on this. I mean, we, there was this really complex network, this web of fantasy and deception with loads of fake artists that this guy had created and uh, and put it all together and found out who was who. And it turned out that there was this kind of bumblebee figure artist in in germany etc i mean i'll I'll say recommend reading the article because it's too complex to explain but what i think it's interesting for is first of all it shows the speed by which uh contemporary online networks can emerge and develop i mean in terms of uh, of this kind of specific network it emerged really really quickly got hundreds of channels it was kind of an astroturf campaign it was orchestrated centrally but looked to many people organic it attracted in huge amounts of numbers, huge high levels of engagement. That's part one. Part two is um, the willingness of individuals within this kind of conspiratorial world to engage with this fantasy content. And and why it is that we think this is dangerous, right? Uh, and I think there's a number of reasons, right? The, the big th- takeaways from this is in the last year with so many people engaging with conspiracy theory content, it's very easy to kind of go, yeah, this is just strange, weird online stuff, you know, someone dressed as a bumblebee, why should we care? But 
I think there's a couple of reasons here. One is, I think it does fundamentally undermine elements of democracy. You know, these vast misinformation campaigns and deception campaigns that we're kind of monitoring and tracking, first of all, they're global, but they also undermine the pillars of democracy, the institutions of democracy. The more and more people that we see engaging with them, understandably, if they start to believe that there is actually secret elites running the world, that there is a cabal that secretly runs things, that there is these weird kind of figures that actually have all the control, you know, why bother voting? You know, why why bother going to the ballot box if that makes no difference because the world is secretly run by these cabals of secret paedophiles and the like? You know, so there's that element. We also see higher levels of engagement with violence, extremism coming out of these networks. You know, the, the 5G stuff has made up a lot of the conspiracy in the UK. has resulted in nearly 100 5G towers being burnt to the ground in the UK, not least European terror, uh, anti-terror agencies talking about the conspiracy theory terror scene. So... These things actually have really worrying real-world consequences as well as being quite strange. But, I mean, specifically in terms of that work, I'd recommend going to the the Hope Not Hate website and having a look at it. We we unmasked the guy, and it looks now in the last few days, actually, that he's probably going to be winding up the network. So it was a nice little win, actually, in terms of kind of exposing who he is and uh, and hopefully winding up the network and and stopping some of its impact. Uh, Just on the subject of 5G towers, why do you think it was that so many in the UK – were burnt down because we had a similar phenomenon in Australia of people talking about burning them down, but uh, no one ever got the matches out, really. Uh, what do you think was the difference there? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I don't know why they didn't in some places. And I mean, why kind of why radical politics or, or radicalised politics essentially radicalises into violence in some places and, and not others, and at some times and not others? Is There's a kind of vast academic literature that tries to grapple with that. But I mean, I think part of it in the UK was the 5G conspiracy really was intrinsically tied into this explosion of QAnon in the UK uh, and this explosion of conspiracy theory content in the UK. You know, for many in this scene, 5G was either the cause of the current pandemic or a cover for doing all sorts of other malicious things. And I think for some people, when you, you know, understandably, if you turn around and say that people are getting ill, People are being made ill by this thing. It's not a great surprise when some people take it into their own hands and, and decide to try and do something about it. And it's one of those strange examples where someone's engaging in very extreme political action out of a kind of conspiracy theory, which is nonsensical. But they are essentially in some ways doing it for the right reasons. You know, many of them that were attacking 5G stations genuinely thought they were helping people's health, which kind of shows how bad things can come out of this scene despite people trying to go in with good intentions. But why it happened... Here and it didn't elsewhere. I, I, I couldn't give you an exact reason. I, I don't know if there's, um, in some ways, it's not particularly British, you know, they'd probably argue, but I don't know. <laughs> We've seen the relative decline of more traditional party based forms of far right activity in the UK at the same time as there's been seemingly an increase in the uh, number of very young people, teenagers especially, being attracted to some of the more extremist expressions of far-right activity. What do you think is the relationship, if any, between those two phenomena? Yeah, yeah, I think these are really two worrying and two two big trends we're seeing uh, over the last few years. I mean, in terms of this kind of emergence of what we at Hope Not Hate call the post-organisational far-right, by that we mean the internet has facilitated or allowed the development and emergence of movements that exist completely beyond the confines of traditional far-right organizations. So what you have is hundreds or sometimes even thousands of individuals 
offering small donations of time, micro donations of time, money, you know, all sorts of little bits of activism towards political goals. And in some ways, they don't have formal organisations, although sometimes there are, but there's no formal structures. You don't have the South Wales leader of the movement, the North Wales leader of the movement, etc. You have this disparate collective of far-right activists, kind of often led by figureheads rather than leaders. And these figureheads are often kind of journalists or, or you know, self-styled journalists or far-right activists with large social media followings. And the movement is a bit like a school of fish. It moves towards you know, particular issues at particular times. And it exists online often, usually primarily, and it, you know, especially places like Telegram, etc. So you have these decentralized networks of far-right activists. And then this other phenomenon you mentioned is we've seen this real dramatic rise in the number of very young people getting involved in very extreme neo-Nazi politics. A colleague of mine, Patrick Hermanson, who's been on the podcast before, he uh, outed a, a thing called the British Hand last year and another one called the National Partisan Movement in the State of Hate Report. And these these guys were like teenagers, in some cases very young teenagers. And, and I'm sure you've also heard of the numerous arrests of people from terror groups around the world that some were as young as 13, 14, 15. So this kind of mixture of young people getting involved. And so what's the link between the two? Well, part of it is traditionally getting involved in far-right politics, pre-the-internet, of course, meant you know, you would join the British National Party, you would go and deliver leaflets, you would, there would be a social cost to that activism, there was a time cost to activism, you would go out and sell newspapers, you would go deliver leaflets, you would hold, you know, street stalls, etc. You would go to meetings, you'd have a badge, all of those things. Part of that came with a social cost as well, the, the chances of being found were very high. In the age of the internet and this post-organisational scene, anyone in the world can get involved in far-right politics with no social cost, you can do it anonymously. You can sit in your bedroom in Australia and you can send anti-Semitic hatred to a British MP or vice versa or anywhere in the world. And I think that there was the kind of the lack of checks and balances in these online spaces, especially like Telegram, mean that there's really, really young people getting involved in this content and stumbling across this content. You know, if you think about how easy this stuff is to find, uh, you can stumble across it on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, on the mainstream platforms, and then get radicalized towards these more bespoke platforms like you know, BitChute or Telegram. Stumbling across very extreme content is far easier than it was perhaps traditionally possible to find extremists. If you wanted to get Holocaust denial literature 20 years ago, you had to write to a Holocaust denial. You know, you had to go to a, an extreme far-right book list, some often in America, and write to them and get it. Now you can just type it into Google when you're slightly interested, what's Holocaust denial, and it will come up with every Holocaust denial book ever written. And so the ease with which young people can engage with this content and engage with it anonymously means the social cost and that initial hurdle of getting involved is so much lower. And as a result, I think we're seeing more young people get involved. In this context, one question that occurs to me is, given that many who are attracted or there's a large proportion or an increasing proportion of teenagers especially being attracted to this kind of politics. What kinds of problems does that present to Hope Not Hate in terms of, you know, discovering the identities of these uh, minors and then attempting to respond to the fact that they're posing as whatever online but distributing, you know, what is in some cases uh, basically, you know, legally speaking, terrorist material? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, right, in that, it pose, you know, in some ways, our traditional modus operandi for going after neo Nazis doesn't apply here. You know, if we're going after a thirty-year-old neo Nazi, our 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 aim is to cause them as much damage as possible, to kind of 
to really get get on top of them. That's not the case when it's a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. There's a whole difference. There's a safeguarding issue there. You know, in some ways, some of these kids in their early teenage years, while I think we would still agree they, they can be very dangerous and they're engaging in very pernicious politics that can cause real-world harm, sometimes they're the victim as well as the perpetrator here, right? These are kids that have often been groomed into this politics. They've been radicalized by older people on the far right. And, you know, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, that yes, they can do some damage, but they're also, you know, uh, it's a very, very different approach that you would take with a 13-year-old neo-Nazi than you would with a 30-year-old neo-Nazi. In some ways, of course, they are breaking the law, right? We've seen a number of terrorism arrests of teen young teenagers in the last year in the UK. And once they're into the system, it then becomes a de-radicalization issue, but it also, you know, uh, it, you know so it's a very different one. So we've, we're, we've, we publish in a very different way. Obviously, we don't expose the names of kids, we try not, you know, we don't, we wouldn't go after them in the same way we would go after an older person, which our job, you know, I feel like our job is to expose them and attack them. I think with a, a much younger group, our job is to kind of highlight why they're dangerous, what problems they're causing. And then there is a safeguarding issue there. Sometimes it'll be a safeguarding issue with a school. You know, it'll be about pro- pro- approaching the safeguarding leads at a school rather than necessarily publishing the person's name and etc. as we would traditionally. So, it's a very different approach, but none of it's to say that I don't think these kids can cause major problems. You know, 15, 16-year-olds, we've seen some arrests of engaging in very, very extreme and dangerous behavior, and at which point it then becomes an issue for the state. You know, as anti-fascists, we can do so much, but I can't. we can't arrest them or we can't de-radicalize them ourselves. So it kind of, in some ways, just because they're young doesn't mean they can't stab someone, doesn't mean they can't plant a bomb. So it's not about not taking them seriously, but it's about dealing with them differently, I think. One British organisation which has recently come to some attention here in Australia is uh, the Sonnenkrieg Division, which uh, the Australian government has just announced will be prescribed to a little bit of confusion because they didn't seem to be especially active here. But could you tell us what that group's about? Yeah, sure. I mean, the Sonnenkrieg Division is essentially the UK branch, if you will, or in some ways of the kind of Atomwaffen Division that I'm sure you will have kind of heard of as well. They're an extreme neo-Nazi kind of national socialist order, also really tied into um, kind of order of nine angles as well in some ways. But it's a kind of, it's a neo-Nazi group. It's based in the UK. It's really kind of has been linked closely to the Atomwaffen uh, division in North America. And they kind of came to some prominence in the UK when they some members of its group talked about saying Prince Harry was a race traitor. Uh, because Prince Harry had, had married Meghan Markle. And, and this kind of got them quite a bit of press in the UK. Uh, and as a result, kind of lots lots of kind of kicks off. I mean, we talk about it in the State of Hate Report as lots of people being involved, some of whom had come out of national action, so I'm sure you've also heard of, which is the banned kind of terror group in the UK. One of the things I think is, is really central to this is the Order of Nine Angles. The Order of Nine Angles is this kind of Nazi Satanist cult that started in the UK back in the late 60s or early 70s, depending on who you believe, run by David Meyer, kind of long-standing neo-Nazi, and also a long-standing Satanist, engaging in very, very extreme things. Many of the people in the Sonnenkrieg division have been influenced by the Order of Nine Angle, uh, and that's really, really important for understanding some of its iconography, but also some of its really ugly, extreme politics we've been calling on the british government to ban the order of nine angles for the last year with no luck as yet i'm sure that it will happen at some point so it's also kind of tied into this really kind of really i mean when i say extreme i'm talking about 
talking about rape as a weapon of like using rape as a weapon, kind of murder, torture, terror, uh, rape fantasies, satanic fantasies. This is about as extreme as it gets when you look at the Sonnenkrieg division at the moment. So I think it's a you know a pretty welcome step in terms of Australia finally banning them because uh, I don't think in, in terms of the politics we monitor at home, like, hey, it doesn't really get more extreme than the Sonnenkrieg division. Someone else who's been convicted recently was a member of National Action, Benjamin Hannum, who is also a member of the Metropolitan Police. Could you tell us a bit about that case? I'm also curious. He was, as well as being charged with belonging to a uh, banned group, he was also charged with possession of child pornography, which seems to be a sort of common theme with a lot of these arrests that we see of members of groups like National Action. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just on, on the second bit first, if you will, the, uh, the, the kind of link to paedophilia. This is a huge thing. Uh, in in uh, part of this is tied into the order of nine angles stuff as well. Many of these groups that we monitor at the most extreme end, there is really high levels of paedophilia, and one of the questions that remains is whether or not some people are getting it. Some some people in the group talk about paedophilia as you know, especially around the Satanist element, is we reject all societal norms. There is no rules in society. We do what we want. And so the question is whether or not you're seeing paedophiles finding a sense of community in these groups that seem to be relatively tolerant towards it, or whether or not people, once they're in them, are turning towards it. I mean, it's a question that remains outgoing, but this is certainly worth something highlighting, which is especially ironic in some ways, considering how much of the far right spend their time bemoaning paedophile gangs and, and are talking about the protection of children. This is a major thing. We've had so many cases of individuals on the extreme far right being arrested for terrorism and then when their computers have been seized finding child sexual exploitation imagery on their computers so that's definitely a trend that we're seeing when we talk about this benjamin hanam he was found guilty at the old bailey uh, essentially for lying about his membership of national action national action was a neo-nazi terror group banned by the british government it's pretty staggering that this guy managed to get into the police having been a member of something so extreme. And in some ways it shows a failing, of course, of the the vetting system for the police in the UK, but also the lack of grasp of something like national action. I mean, national action was so extreme, but they were also pretty public. This was a terror group that marched down the streets, that had demonstrations waving flags. You know, this is, if you wanted to, find, I mean, we've managed to find most of them ourselves at Hope Not Hate. This is something you would have thought the state would be able to have done itself. The guy was arrested. He's been uh, kind of, uh, as a result, he, he basically, when you fill in your job application to join the police, there's a vetting form, and he just didn't see, just, you know, <laughs> failed to mention that he was a neo-Nazi terrorist. And he got a job as a probation uh, police constable. Uh, and then, basically, this has now gone through the courts. It's come out that he's, you know, the police has apologised. He essentially infiltrated the police in some ways. And as a result, now he's obviously been uh, kicked out and arrested, etc. So, it's a real major failing. And I think in some ways it's really emblematic of the lack of understanding about national action and the lack of understanding about how banning organizations can and can't be effective. I think there was a real sense by many that the moment you banned national action, the problem just disappeared. And I think this would be an interesting one for people in Australia with Sonnenkrieg. You know, we've seen time and time again, not just on the far right with something like national action, but on the Islamist movement with al Mujahirun which was banned 10 times under 10 different names. Just because you ban the organization doesn't mean the activists disappear. You know, we've got numerous national action members 
active in patriotic alternative now. You've got this guy that was active in national action going into the police. The politics outlives the name. And I think that's really, really important. And I think that for too many people, it seemed to be that the government banned national action, the problem disappeared, and then they just took their eye off the ball. And taking their eye off the ball is this is just another example of this with a guy that ends up getting into the Metropolitan Police who should have never been anywhere near it if people were monitoring this properly. In Australia, we have equivalent Nazi groups running around. We had uh, Antipodean resistance, which modelled itself upon national action, then uh, dissolved and has now re-emerged as the National Socialist Network, which again was a name that was deployed by National Action, I think, for a period of time after its prescription over there. One of the issues that's emerged, I think, in terms of um, the Australian context is the nature of the reportage on these groups and their activities, because as in the UK, very often they'll conduct public stunts precisely in order to draw attention and with the explicit uh, aim of generating reportage and attention. What do you think are the, I guess, failings of reportage on these groups? And how do you distinguish Hate Not Hate's approach to documenting um, the far right and uh, neo-Nazi politics? Yeah, I love this question, right? Because this, this is something we talk about all the time in the office, as you can imagine. I think, first of all, I mean, I think that different publications serve different purposes, right? I mean, we publish this big report like State of Hate, which has lots of organizations in it, names in it, etc. But we're very aware that we're speaking to a very specific audience, right? We speak to the anti-fascist movement. We speak to journalists and academics. Uh, we kind of speak to journalists, uh, commentators and politicians, if you will. But like, you know, the, the general public don't stumble across a copy of the State of Hate and, and flick across and find out the name of new far-right groups. It's for people that are engaged in this world. It's partly about education and, and information. The real danger, I think, comes when mainstream outlets publish these big exposés uh, about kind of far-right groups, and essentially they amplify them, right? They don't take them down. They end up amplifying them. Vice News has been especially bad for this in America, where they would find a Telegram channel that was kind of relatively insignificant or, or worse, was being monitored by anti-fascists. Well, and then they would blow it up and they would put the name of the group out there. They'd put the name of the leaders out there. And what do you want? You watch over the next day as the group trebled in size. And I think there's a massive difference between people like ourselves publishing this or the SPLC in America or anti-fascist networks around the world publishing informative information on the nature of contemporary threats and mainstream art newspapers and magazines essentially publishing sexy stories on the far right. You know, so many times you open a newspaper and you find a big splash with the kind of kind of the own the imagery used by the movement itself because it's very extreme or eye catching, a kind of headline like Nazi hipsters or something ridiculous like that, and it doesn't actually land a punch in any way against the far right or that group at all. Generally speaking, it serves to amplify them; it gives them cachet within the movement. And so I think it's sometimes just irresponsible. I mean, we spend a lot of time working with journalists, many of which are brilliant. But we also spend a lot of time telling journalists not to publish things. You know, they ring up and say, we want to write a story on so-and-so. And my response will often be, this group is really unimportant at the moment. They're having a really bad time. They're going through a crisis or they're too small. They're not getting any mainstream attention. They will be over the moon if you publish an article about them or put them in your radio clip, etc. And so trying to kind of find out when to amplify a danger and say, look, this thing is really important and really scary. We need action. 
and when to turn around and try and play it down and say you're going to amplify something that's not important. I think it's about having both of those tactics and trying to effectively work with the media to try and stop the more sensationalist amplification and but making sure that they are aware that when something is really dangerous and we really need action or we need national eyes on it going to them then and saying actually now you need to talk about this this is the group that's dangerous these are the people that are worrying we need to whip up kind of concern around this group so using both of those tactics but i completely agree that there's so much irresponsible reporting out there by individuals that just know that it's going to get good clicks because it looks extreme or it sounds a bit dangerous and sexy You've co-authored a book on the international alt-right. I'm wondering what you can say about what you understand to be the linkages between fascist activists in the UK and those in Australia. Is that a an important connection? What's the nature of that relationship? Well, I think there's a few things there, right? One is not just the kind of alt-right, but for the far right generally, the big topic in the last year has been uh, cross-channel migration and migration and immigration. And for many years for the far right, Australia has been a kind of inspiration, if you will, in terms of its kind of strong border policies, if that's the the correct term. (laughs) But like, you know, uh, not allowing immigrants in, forcing boats to turn around, etc. That has acted as a, a level of inspiration. You'll often hear at the most extreme ends, kind of admiration for the things like, you know, pushing migrants to other places and islands, etc. Um, but also there's not just the far right. If you think about the, the British, the mainstream debate around immigration, around the Conservative Party, much of the press, uh, the press, Australia is always the touchstone of uh, the sort of country we should be like when it comes to being hard on immigration, hard on immigrants, um, turning people around, stopping people arriving. We even floated uh, create getting our own island where we could put uh, new arrivals so there's that element there. Then at the more extreme end, I mean, we've seen, for example, uh, during uh, we have a group called Patriotic Alternative. They had a big day of action last year the uh, on Indigenous Peoples Day, and they also kind of tied up with uh, various people or people got involved in that from Australia and New Zealand as well. So you see that. And then the other big thing, I think, the big area where we've seen real strong crossover in the last 10 years, really, is around this kind of anti-Muslim counter-jihad scene. So whether or not that is figures like Tommy Robinson or Stephen Yatsidan in the UK working with um, Avi Yemeni in Australia and kind of giving Avi Yemeni a job, or whether or not it is kind of the kind of back and forth tours that were supposed to happen with Tommy Robinson going to Australia, people like Gavin McInnes from America going to Australia, Lauren Southern going to Australia, Milo Yiannopoulos going to Australia. Um, This kind of anti-Muslim scene if you will, the kind of uh, counter-jihad scene, if you will, there's been lots of back and forth there. Uh, and, you know, that relationship between Avi Yemeni and, and Stephen Yaxi Lennon was really important for a few years um, in the UK, especially while Tommy Robinson was in prison. So I think there's both at the extreme end, there's this kind of neo-Nazi element about around kind of international whiteness. There is this connection around this kind of anti-Muslim scene. And then there is this veneration of the anti-immigrant politics of Australia from the, both the radical right and the far right in the UK. Joe, we've also seen figures like uh, Tommy and uh, various others in the UK and elsewhere, I guess, eschew the label of activist or political actor and instead turn to uh, labelling themselves journalists. That's certainly the case in Australia with figures like Avi Yemeni and, and various others. What kind of protection do you think that status affords them And what is the political significance of this shift in terminology 
in terms of their appeal to, I guess, a broader audience. Yeah, it's a major problem, right? And it's it's one that's Tommy Robinson or Stephen Yaxley Lennon was at the forefront of in the UK. You know, Rebel Media came from Canada, run by a guy called Ezra Levant. And, you know, he had on his kind of alternative media site, people like Lawrence Southern, Tommy Robinson, Gavin McInnes, I could go on. They came to the UK and, and, and this idea that they were journalists, not activists, I think is part of a real broader attempt to kind of co-opt this language of um, truth-telling, you know, anti-fake news. It's all kind of hypocritical in many ways. But this idea that these people are just telling the truth, from, we're being lied to in society by the mainstream media and these elites, and we need these people on the front line to just tell the truth. Tommy Robinson was very important for that in terms of making this a thing in the UK. But right now, we, we, I mentioned earlier, a lot of this anti-migrant politics in the UK, that's being spearheaded by a group of people that class themselves as activist journalists or citizen journalists. Um, and they're spending every day on the coasts of the UK filming boats arriving and whipping up this tension. And they're even invading hotels where migrants are being housed, really ugly sort of politics. But they are classing themselves as journalists. They are even getting themselves fake press credentials from the kind of far-right trade union. Um, and it, all of it is kind of playing into this idea, and it fits into all the wider discussion and debate that free speech is under attack, and even these journalists aren't allowed to say what they want. These journalists are trying to tell the truth, and their free speech is being suppressed because they're being deplatformed from mainstream social media platforms. They're essentially framing themselves not as far-right activists, but as mainstream people, as normal everyday people, non-political in some ways. This isn't about politics. This isn't about pushing a far-right agenda. This is about telling the truth. And as a result, when they are then deplatformed or not given voices on mainstream television or radio, it really feeds into this existing kind of victim mentality that they're kind of just mainstream voices being shut out for telling inconvenient truths. It also means that they're harder to take on in some ways, right? You know, when there was the English Defence League, for example, you know, there was a regional leader in every part of the country. If the regional leader Sieg Heild in the west of England, we would write an article saying English Defence League leader Sieg Heils, and the whole movement was rightly tarred as problematic. If one of these guys messes up, they just disappear. You know, if one of these so-called journalists does something terrible, in which they invariably do, they just disappear or they, they become less important and someone else takes their place. It's like a many-headed hydra. You know, each week new ones pop up, each week some of them disappear, and they all pump the same message. There is a continuity of message, but the people offering that message can change. Uh, and so I think it posits real challenges to the anti-fascist movement in some ways, and I think it also may in some cases kind of open doors to more mainstream things. I think if you think about Lawrence Southern claiming she's a documentary maker and ending up on Sky News in Australia uh, in recent months, you know, this this sort of thing, people who are unaware of who they are in these people's histories uh, take them for granted or take their word for granted and say that, oh, okay, this is a journalist, an independent journalist. And so whether or not uh, this opens doors to the mainstream for these people is going to be really worrying, I think. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. People can check out the Hope Not Hate State of Hate report at hopenothate.org.uk. Thanks very much for having me. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. We'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. Talk to you then. Bye.
say this is sudden Times are getting tough but my time start running Fuck my head, music by my side Can't get to the rhythm, I don't need it by my side Time for the wrong, I'm freaking back up Yeah, one thing that I can't depend on It's been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse, and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter, Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm, on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there.